From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. you know, dare to be different was a slogan in the church and we were a religious minority and we understood that occupying a place of difference um, at the edge of American Christianity, at the edge of civil society was important that we were holding a place of conscience, a place apart where we could raise our families and live our lives on terms that were aligned with our faith. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Joanna Brooks. Longtime listeners will remember that she's been on the show before talking about her book, the Book of Mormon Girl. Today, we're back talking about her most recent book, and we'll get into that in just a moment. But she is an award-winning author and editor of 10 books on race, religion, gender, social movements, and American culture. She's appeared in global media outlets, including the BBC, NPR, The Daily Show, CNN, MSNBC, and The Washington Post. In her day job as Associate Vice President for Faculty Advancement and Student Success at San Diego State University, she leads faculty development and student academic support efforts at a large, public, and research-intensive Hispanic-serving institution of higher education. She's also worked as a volunteer, activist, and organizer in the labor, feminist, anti-racist, LGBT, equality, and migrant rights movement. Movements. She holds a Ph.D. in English from the University of California, Los Angeles, and is a proud fourth-generation Southern Californian. Joanna Brooks, welcome to Things Not Seen. Oh, David, it's good to be back, and thank you for having me. So we're talking about your most recent book, Mormonism and White Supremacy, American Christianity and the Problem of Racial Innocence. And to get into that discussion, I want to take a moment and talk about a conversation that happens in 1978 between Barbara Walters when she's interviewing Donnie and Marie Osmond, the singing duo that were so popular in the 1970s. I want you to set for us the stage of that conversation. What does Barbara Walters ask Donnie Osmond, and why does she ask it? And, oh, David, you've started with a scene from Mormon cultural history that has been one of the most painful for people in my community who have read this book to relive. So it's 1978. The Osmonds, as superstars of what was called kind of offensively, quote, blue-eyed soul, um, have been featured everywhere, front cover, uh, cover of the Rolling, of Rolling Stone magazine. And, and Barbara Walters has made a special trip to Osmond Family Studios in Orem, Utah, and spent a day with them with her camera crew and, and recorded the Osmond family as exemplars of Mormon family values of the faith emphasis on clean living and big families. <laughs> and so, but she sits down then with, with Donnie and Marie, and it's clear that because Barbara Walters is a professional, they've been prepared. They know the question's coming. It's not a gotcha. And, and they're ready to the degree they can be. And she says to them, you know, I wouldn't be doing my job, you know, presumably as a journalist, if I didn't ask you about your church's ban 
on ordination of black men to the priesthood. How do you account for that, basically? And and Donnie leans forward and gives what's clearly a very pre-rehearsed answer, carefully scripted answer about not being an authority on such matters, that he's going to defer to the general authorities on of the church, but that, you know, he stands by that the Mormon church has more to offer black people than any other religion on the face of the earth, and basically all is well. And seen. <laughs> Ouch. Well, and what we get from that is, uh, I just want to lift up a couple of things that you just said. First of all, Donnie knew that the question was coming. I believe so. He, he had been prepared for his answer. Talk to me about the mindset that goes into your understanding that he had been prepared that the question was coming. Why do you say that? Well, sure. So, if you look closely at the YouTube video, and I've watched it more times than I care to recount, it's clear that he knows what he's going to say. And he takes a deep breath and he leans forward and he delivers it. And Marie doesn't say anything. And no one looks uncomfortable. They look like they've rehearsed, like they're really good performers. And, you know, the Osmonds were, everyone knows, in very close touch with LDS church headquarters, who definitely saw them as emissaries of the faith and which has a a PR branch, and I'm sure they were by that point retaining their own PR firm, but there, there are none of the physiological signals of, of distress or surprise going on. So it's clear he knows this question is coming, and she's launched it as a softball. You know, she said, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't ask this. So she asked almost in an apologetic way. But what's most interesting to me, as you highlighted, is what is the mindset that informs this? Now, first of all, you know, it had been just sort of a pablum, a circulated, um, you know, little dictum in, in white Mormon circles that the church, by virtue of being as Mormons then would have viewed it, and some do today, the only true church on the face of the earth had more, even in a segregated fashion, to offer black believers than any other church. That was something white Mormons said to each other. All of the answers Donnie provided to Barbara Walters were the kind of answers white Mormons had grown accustomed to providing each other, to reiterating in Sunday school classes and Sabbath meetings and home conversations about the church's segregation. And this is, in the book, what I refer to as the problem both of racial innocence and the problem of Black abstraction. There are things white Mormons over time grew accustomed to saying to themselves to rationalize the church's segregation that sounded okay if you were in a room of white Mormons. But the minute one starts saying those to civil society, to the world, to believers of other faiths, let alone to actual Black people. And they don't sound so good. They sound, in fact, cruel and deeply, deeply limited. That's what I see going on. And that deeper structure of racial innocence and the abstraction of Black lives, one of my arguments is, has persisted in Mormonism and actually in many, many forms of organized Christianity even after the LDS Church lifted the ban just a few months after Donnie Osmond's interview in the same year, 1978. Well, and I want to get into those concepts that you just laid out for us, but before we leave this interview between Donnie Osmond and Barbara Walters, you say in the book that you see this as reflecting a shift in the wider culture, the very fact that Barbara Walters would ask that question. What shifted? Right, and thank you. Um, You know, for... For decades, mainstream American society had given Mormons a pass, and Mormons on racial issues, that is. Remember, Mormons entered the 20th century as viewed as, by the majority of Americans as an extremist, marginal sect. 
Senator Reed Snoot, when he attempted to take his seat in the Senate, was subject to a multi-year hearing over his fitness to serve due to his affiliation with Mormonism. Mormons had gradually stepped into or tried to secure a place for themselves in the American mainstream. And some of their main emissaries, our main emissaries in this effort, were performing arts groups like the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, which performed at presidential inaugurations, like the Osmond family. And everywhere these performing arts groups went, no one seemed to call them, even in the 1950s, 1960s, during the Civil Rights Movement, 1970s, no one seemed to call them on their racism. I was astounded. You know, Rolling Stone's cover image of Donnie and their article on him, their feature lead article on Donnie Osmond in the 1970s made no mention of the racial politics of the faith of the group. And that's fascinating. I mean, this is the 70s, right? You know, there was a singing group today that, you know, affiliated with openly racially segregated group. It would be an issue. And it wasn't an issue until 1978 when the first inkling we see of the mainstream no longer being willing to tolerate Mormons on racial segregation is in the Barbara Walter interview. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Joanna Brooks. She's been on our show before talking about her her past book, The Book of Mormon Girl. Today, she's talking about her recent book, Mormonism and White Supremacy, American Religion and the Problem of Racial Innocence. You've begun to talk about this in your answer to the question about Donny Osmond, but I want to dig deeper. You make the claim in your book, Mormonism and White Supremacy, that American white Christianity is employing a technology for the production of racial innocence. And you you said, and I'm going to paraphrase, that Donny Osmond was sort of enacting innocence or performing innocence in his response to Barbara Walters. Unpack for us what this idea of the production of racial innocence means. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity. Churches in America have been segregated from almost our beginnings. There are moments we can point to in the 17th, certainly in the 18th centuries, when, you know, there were interracial um, efflorescences of religious fervor, the Great Awakening, New Light Movement, the Second Great Awakening. Um, We can even see it in Pentecostalism in the early 20th century. But what we see is as soon as churches institutionalize and settle down and leave the phase of being an early religious movement and transform into a religious institution, they acquire a property interest, and that property interest is secured through generally through whiteness. And so we see in late 18th century Philadelphia, in the Quaker City, in a city that was generally intolerant of the enslavement of human beings, two black worshipers at an Episcopal church, um, Absalom Jones and Richard Allen, pulled off their knees while in prayer and removed to a segregated gallery, uh, an event that led them to found their own Black-specific Christian denominations. So as churches in the U.S. have institutionalized, we've created white churches, we've created black churches. And one of the functions of white churches over time has been to provide um, believers with a way of exculpating themselves from the sins of our time. And every church has its own little formula on that. Like, what do you have to do to be redeemed? What do you have to do to be, you know, innocent of the sins of our times? But what we find is that in predominantly white churches, the bar is pretty low 
there is an abandonment of older theological definitions of sin that held that sin was a common condition that had to be remedied through a common covenant with Christ. And instead of that, as you know, as American Christianity, Protestantism specifically, and it's actually like Mormonism grows and moves into the 19th century, the notion of sin is ever, ever more rationalized into something an individual does that he or she or they can redeem through individual good works. And that usually looks like piety. That usually looks like you do good deeds, you don't sleep with your neighbor's wife, you don't say bad words, and you pay a generous tithe. And that's considered forgiveness and all as well. What we lose along the way is this deeper, richer sense of sin and responsibility. And what that means is that we never have in organized white churches, except for the height of the abolitionist movement, but a substantial conversation about our collective responsibility ongoing for structural inequality. That never disrupts our conversations. Now, I want to make sure that I'm hearing you correctly, because both in your book and in the answer that you just gave, I see the edge of something. And and let me see if I can say it, and then you tell me if I've got it right or if I need to adjust what I'm saying. Mormonism, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, was an outsider religion to American Protestantism. As it tried to become part of the mainstream, part of its cost of admission was it had to become more clear on its racial stance against people of color. Do I have that movement correctly, that part of the price of admission to be accepted as a mainline or a more mainline Protestant denomination, it had to get in line with racial segregation? So I want to make it clear from the outset that Mormonism, even as an early religious movement, never had a commitment to black emancipation, an institutional theological commitment. There were black people who joined the church in its early days. Some of them persisted, some did not. But by the time the church gets to Utah in 1852, on very much on its own steam, on its own turf, and on its own terms, Brigham Young sets out a vision for the future of Mormonism that is unquestionably white supremacist. It's a vision in which white men bear rule over all others, and those are his words. And you know, and that persists as it does in Utah. Utah becomes a slave state. Few people know that, effectively a slave territory. And the effect of which is not to enslave large numbers of captive Africans and African-Americans, but to actually keep black people out of the territory. And then as it joins the mainstream, uh, historian Paul Reeve has shown, it had to prove its whiteness. America was very ambivalent on the whiteness of Mormons. And yes, part of joining the mainstream was in demonstrating that we were white like everyone else. And our resistance to desegregate was a part of that. Absolutely. Well, and so if I'm hearing that correctly, then unlike the Quakers, who you mentioned a moment ago, who have some abolitionist roots in their sort of history, we don't find a similar historical stance in the founding of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I just want to make sure that I've heard that correctly. That is true. Joseph Smith, you people knew, know, ran for president in 1844, and the, the, the plank in his platform on race was gradual emancipation, which by 1844 was in a very, very middle-of-the-road approach. And there were actually early warnings that were sent out as the LDS movement settled in places like Missouri that black saints should be advised that if they came, their freedom would not necessarily be protective given the conflict over slavery in the region. So yes, no one threw down in the early church to protect black people. 
We'll get into more of this after a break, but for now, so that listeners know what we're talking about, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Joanna Brooks. We welcome her back to the show. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Mormonism and White Supremacy, American Religion and the Problem of Racial Innocence. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're happy today to welcome back our guest, Joanna Brooks. She's been on the show before during our first season talking about her book, The Book of Mormon Girl. Today we're talking about her recent book, Mormonism and White Supremacy, American Religion and the Problem of Racial Innocence. Well, we've begun to talk about the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We've talked about Joseph Smith, the founder, and Brigham Young, in many ways the popularizer and the evangelist of the denomination. But I want to ask you a question about another figure that plays into the early history of the Mormon Church, and that's Jane Manning James. Tell us about her. Sure. So Jane Manning James was, of course, a convert to Mormonism, like most folks in the 1830s, 1840s were. She, with a group of relatives, leaves her home in New England and makes her way west to Illinois to Joseph Smith's house and shows up having traveled um, an extraordinary distance on her own steam, having really struggled to make it, you know, down to the dissolving boots on her feet. So she shows up and she's uh, taken in by Joseph Smith and Emma Smith and, and is a member generally of their household for some time and crosses the plains to Utah and is one of the early pioneers in who settled in the Salt Lake Valley. And from the late 1840s onward, she retains a very visible place in the community and a place somewhat of honor as an early Utah pioneer and as probably the most prominent African-American member of the time. Well, and so I just want to make sure that this is clear to listeners. She is an African-American who converts to Mormonism, and she goes to Illinois, and then she makes the trek out to Utah. So she is one of the founders of, in many ways, the sort of Mormon stronghold there in Utah. Now, does this in any way affect Joseph Smith's thinking on these racial questions? Does it affect Brigham Young's thinking on these racial questions? Do we have evidence that she had an influence on them? Do we have any evidence that that influence shifted after her death? Great question. And, you know, it should be clear that she was one of a, of a cohort of early black Mormons. And there's a man named Kwaku Walker Lewis in Boston, who is um, a committed member of that city's abolitionist community. Um, and he encounters the church and, and, is, and joins it, is baptized and becomes a Mormon and also makes the trek out to Utah and then heads home after Brigham Young declares it a slave territory back to Massachusetts. You know, there's also Elijah Abel, 
who was the first African-American man ordained to the priesthood. There wasn't always a priesthood ban. In the 1830s, Elijah Abel was ordained by Zebedee Coltrane in Ohio and became a priesthood holder. And of course, Mormonism is a lay priesthood. So many, many people were ordained to do the work of the church. And he also crosses the plains and settles in the Salt Lake Valley. And he spends the next several decades carrying about his own uh, ordination papers, receipts and evidence that he had indeed been ordained as the racial climate erodes around him under the leadership of Brigham Young. So again, we see here this very familiar pattern that as Christian movements institutionalize and take on a property interest as they begin to acquire land and buildings and an identity, you know, and they're no longer something efflorescent and inchoate and revolutionary. Our history in the U.S. among white Christians is that we become segregated spaces. And so Elijah persists and persists every renewing his claims to priesthood with varying success through until his death in the later 19th century. Jane Manning James outlived Elijah Abel and again and again requests for admission to the Salt Lake Temple to, for, to be allowed to participate in the holiest rites of the faith. And she is denied time and time again access to temple rites. And then finally, um, and, and she sits in the front row at every general conference, has a place of honor. And general conference is a semi-annual gathering of Mormons um, you know, from across the church that persists to this day. And she sat in the front row and looked the leaders of the church in the eye at every general conference. And when she died in 1908, it, it was front page news in the Salt Lake newspapers. And her funeral was preached at by then church president Joseph F. Smith, whom she had known. And she insisted that her life history be read at her funeral. And, you know, when one steps back and looks at her work, it is clear that she felt she had a role as a witness to a different possibility in Mormonism, to a truthfulness, could not abide with segregation. It could not abide with it. And she saw this happening around her, and she left her testimony as a witness. And it's remarkable that it's only after her death in 1908 that Joseph F. Smith, who was then the president of the church, who had long sided with Elijah Abel in the ordination controversy, finally throws down and says, nope, no more, no more black ordination. And under his watch, we see a 180, and the 180 finalized, and policies of segregation institutionalized as the church becomes a bureaucratic entity in the early 20th century. And in looking at the institutionalization of those racialized policies, those segregationist policies, two other names crop up, and one of those names is B.H. Roberts and the other is Orson Hyde. Tell us a little bit about their influence on these questions as these debates were sort of raging behind the scenes in Mormonism. Sure, and so, you know, Mormonism in the 19th century had it was, it was a very rich theological environment. There, there was a whole lot happening in Utah territory, even among saints in places like England, theologically, in terms of very generative visions and expansive understandings of what Mormonism could mean and a very elaborative worldview. Um, we didn't have seminaries. We still don't. <laughs> there are no seminaries to train Mormon theologians or priests or church officials. There's not. Um, and it's always been a very lay theological environment. So we find Orson Hyde in the 19th century writing a lot of fantastic speculative works. And, and he is among the first to sort of intuit from some scriptures 
that Joseph Smith had um, produced, the Pearl of Great Price being one of them. It's a it's an ancillary book of scripture to the Book of Mormon and and the Bible. He offered a narrative that perhaps the reason that Black people, as we knew them, were so evidently cursed as they had been decreed by Brigham Young was because they were their spirits in a pre-earthly life that is part of standard Mormon belief had been less valiant and that they came to earth bearing the marks of their inferior performance in a prior life. And that's a belief that persisted until the time I was a kid. Absolutely. And some people will espouse it to this day. And it hovered. It's never necessarily uh, said outright over the pulpit in the latter part of the 20th century, but it absolutely hovered and infused and swirled around Mormon theology and continues to swirl through the present. You will find rural, you will find believing Mormons who will still cop to that, even though many of us do not, of course. So that's an example. B.H. Roberts is another self-taught autodidact who has an affection for Mormon history and theology. And he attempts in the early 20th century to systematize theology, just as systematic theology is becoming an important movement in, in Protestantism, um, just as higher criticism and reflective points of view on theology are becoming important in Protestantism, it's also becoming important to Mormonism. And, and so Roberts attempts to produce a very structured, neatly organized account of the fundamentals of the Mormon faith as a curriculum, as a lesson manual. And in this book, he provides the first officially sanctioned account of why Black people in Mormonism will not be ordained to the priesthood or offered admission to the temples. And, you know, one of the great surprises is looking into his source text and recognizing that to justify this, some of the sources he cited were Confederate history, were biological racist textbooks written by professors at Tulane University. I mean, this is early Utah, early early 20th century Utah, and our theologians are citing as source text openly racist texts from the Confederacy. So that's remarkable. It's remarkable. And it just shows how Mormonism has invented theological premises for its segregation. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're happy to welcome back our guest, Joanna Brooks. She's spoken to us before about her book, The Book of Mormon Girl. Today we're speaking about her recent book, Mormonism and White Supremacy, American Religion and the Problem of Racial Innocence. Well, we began the conversation talking about this conversation between Barbara Walters and Donnie and Marie Osmond. You also make reference to Mitt Romney, who was a senator, a presidential candidate, and is a, is a very visible member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And your characterization of the way that Mitt Romney navigates the, this history of segregation in the church, your phrase is, he makes a thousand painstaking choices at every moment. And I'd love to dig into that, because it's almost as if, if I'm reading you correctly, he has made a kind of Faustian bargain with the history of Mormonism. The leaders of the church have agreed to leave him alone to have his conscience on these matters, and he has agreed not to be vocally critical of the church on these matters. First of all, I want to make sure that I've heard that correctly, or would you characterize it in a different way? I would characterize it in a different way. So the part of the book you're referring to, I talk about exemplars throughout Mormon history who did openly oppose the church's segregation. And opposing church leadership in Mormonism it is a very delicate act, taking a different stance, 
challenging the authority of the LDS church president. Um, since the late 19th century, since the church's abandonment of polygamy, the way Orthodox LDS people view the prophet is, you know, the saying is the Lord will never allow the prophet to lead the people astray. So Mormons claim not to believe in inerrancy, but many of them practice it. To challenge the LDS church president in public is an act that many people believe, especially if you have any kind of platform, any kind of standing, can lead to your excommunication. And we see that through excommunications recently of feminists like Kate Kelly, who pressed forward nation in the Mormon church. That's just in the last few years. So that is the context in which every Mormon of conscience must address our ethical shortcomings as a people. And we see everyone pick their own way through this minefield. And how you negotiate this minefield depends a great deal on privilege, a great deal. So in the book, I provide examples exemplars of a conscientious objector stance. And people like Mitt Romney's father, George Romney, who was governor of Michigan, who organized and supported civil rights marchers in Detroit, including the Reverend Martin Luther King, and organized his own civil rights march because he couldn't participate in King's March because it was on a Sunday, which was his day of rest, and made sure he organized his own one the next day to show that he was in support and, and did oppose, did speak up for desegregation in public. You know, and he could do that, though, because he was a white, privileged man and a member of a multi-generational Mormon family that they weren't going to get rid of him. He was famous. And I, I go through several examples of uh, conscious objectors like that. Stuart Udall, who some people may remember as a, a congressman from the state of Arizona, who later became um, secretary of the Department of the Interior and, in fact, helped desegregate the, the Washington football team, which because their stadium was on federal land, so actively took... Um, anti-segregation stances in public and actively called out the leaders of the church in the 1960s on the church's own continuing segregation. But he wasn't excommunicated. But as we work down into, you know, rank and file Mormons, working class Mormons, uh, Mormons of color, many of those who have opposed the church openly have been shunned or excommunicated, marginalized, some have lost employment, some have been excluded from, you know, participation in LDS Mormon community life. Um, So there, there is a cost. But, you know, that's the same thing with whiteness in general. Each of us who buys into the idea that whiteness is good and is to be protected and is to be cherished, we make a thousand choices every day. And it's going to take a thousand choices every day to unmake the structures that have given whiteness such power as a harbor of cultural capital. You know, where you bank, where you shop, who you look at when you ride the bus, how you stand how you greet people or do not greet people. All of these very daily practices you know, are part of ongoing furnishings or remodelings of the architecture of structural inequality in the U.S. I'm so grateful for the way that you lined that out for us and the, the complexity of trying to navigate the reality of religious identification and racial identification and how intertwined they are. And so I appreciate Exactly. I appreciate so much the correction. There's a phrase that you lift up from a person named Juanita Brooks. And first of all, I'd like you to talk to us about who Juanita Brooks was. But the phrase is riding at the edge of the herd so that you can influence the direction of the herd. And I hear that in the kind of complex negotiation that you're talking about. But tell us a little bit about that phrase and who Juanita Brooks was who said it. Absolutely. And Juanita Brooks, who is 
unfortunately no relation of mine, lived in Southern Utah and was one of Mormonism's great grassroots historians. She wrote, uh, she did original historical research of the scholarly quality and published it on some of the most difficult episodes in Mormon life, like the Mountain Meadows Massacre, which to be fair, was more difficult for the people who Mormon mobs murdered uh, passing through Southern Utah. Um, it was for Mormons themselves. It's one of the most shameful, I should say, episodes in our history. She faced all of these hard truths with a historian's candor and scholarship. And she she was told, she was, she was cautioned by her father, again, with this kind of wonderful Southern Utah sense of, of useful marginalization, right? Everything happens in Salt Lake and, and Southern Utah is a very different place, a very different climate, and, and a bit more of, of historically the Mormon frontier. But she was advised by her father to think of herself, you know, the best place to be for your people is not necessarily to leave the herd and it's not necessarily to ride in the middle of the herd with all of the Orthodox. Find your place at the edge of the herd, at the edge of the herd, right? Belonging, but sort of inhabiting that space of optimal tension, that surface tension that, and through your work, contribute to the direction of the herd. And this, of course, is based on his own experience in, you know, ranching and herding, but it has stuck with Mormons of conscience since then as an important visual for, for how to negotiate the tensions, as you said, of racial and uh, religious identity. Well, I also hear in that phrase, riding at the edge of the herd, I'm aware from our previous conversations that there is a romanticization in Mormon thought of the pioneer, the person who goes to the edge of the territory and explores beyond. I, I hear some of that pioneer spirit in this phrase, riding at the edge of the herd as well. Am I correct in that or am I off base? Well, that's certainly, I mean, so being a pioneer, which is really to say being um, an emigrant, unfortunately colonizes indigenous land, that's rare adjustment. There, a lot of us have had to make. But being a pioneer is definitely like the willingness to be different is critical to Mormonism. Mormons are willing. I was raised, you know, dare to be different was a slogan in the church. And we were a religious minority. And we understood that occupying a place of difference um, at the edge of American Christianity, at the edge of civil society, was important that we were holding a place of conscience, a place apart where we could raise our families and live our lives on terms that were aligned with our faith, right? And so there is something Mormons embrace about being marginal, but to be marginal to whiteness, to challenge its institutions, um, calls up deep fear and shame in Mormon people. A lot of Mormon people to this day carry a tremendous amount of shame around the racial politics of the church, around the things we were taught to believe as children by people we love and trust and admire and who in many, many other respects live very good lives. Addressing that, that's the work. That's the work. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalton. We're speaking today with Joanna Brooks. She's an award-winning author and editor of 10 books on race, religion, gender, social movements, and American culture. She's appeared on global media outlets including the BBC, NPR, and The Daily Show, CNN, MSNBC, and The Washington Post. We've spoken to her before when she released her book, The Book of Mormon Girl, but today we're talking about her recent book, Mormonism and White Supremacy, American Religion and the Problem of Racial Innocence, which does delves into not only the history of the Mormon church on the questions of race and segregation, but also looks at its present explorations and, in fact, looks at the ways in which we can utilize that as a model for examining the wider Christian churches in general. We'll be back in a moment. 
Hey folks, this is David. Thank you for listening and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you're probably aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of them is the Commonweal podcast, produced by my friends over at Commonweal magazine. For almost a century now, Commonweal has staked a claim for Catholic principles and perspectives in American life and for lay people's voices within the church. Their podcast features a wide spectrum of voices discussing art, politics, religion, and civil society. Each episode offers three or four segments that amplify the pages of the print magazine and move into new frontiers. I've been a reader of Commonweal for a long time, and I'm thrilled to share this new podcast with you, whether you're a longtime reader yourself or just discovering it for the first time. You can find the Commonweal podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, as well as on their website, commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. That's commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Today, we're glad to welcome back Joanna Brooks. You may recall that she was a guest on our first ever season of Things Not Seen back when we were broadcasting from Memphis. We were talking then about her book, The Book of Mormon Girl. Today, she's back to talk about her recent book, Mormonism and White Supremacy, American Religion and the Problem of Racial Innocence. So in your book, Mormonism and White Supremacy, you are making the claim that if we study Mormonism as a model for understanding the issues of segregation and white supremacy within the Mormon church, that gives us an illumination of the wider Christian context, and in particular, how white American Christianity has navigated these issues. So talk to me about the mechanism where looking closely and critically at this one example of Christian faith illuminates for us the entirety of particularly white American Christian faith. Right. And and as a caveat, Mormonism, you know, some people do not consider it a Christian faith still, even though the faith centers itself quite publicly around um, some pretty traditional more Christian concepts like, you know, redemption through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Right. So I want to acknowledge that. But, um, you know, what I see across the Christian denominations in American religious history is, again, this early efflorescence, this early generosity of spirit in movement building, in revelations, in visions, and gifts of the spirit. And then as churches institutionalize, uh, and they settle into patterns and they acquire property interests. You got to have somewhere to meet. You got to have a building and you got to pay rent. You got to maintain a membership list. And as those lines harden, our churches, Mormon and the broader Christian movement in the U.S. have become quite segregated. Uh, we worship generally, unless you belong to an avowedly interracial faith like like a Pentecostal church. You know, our churches on Sunday are among the most segregated places in American life. That was observed by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, and it's been also held up in surveys done by by the Pew Forum. Churches are racially segregated. Why? What is the function of that? And, and what I hold is that church is someplace we go to feel good. It's someplace we go to feel safe and forgiven. It has become, you know, like with the calming music and the white vestments and, you know, a place of, of escape rather than a place of active engagement and wrestling with the crises of our time. Um, and again, there are always examples to that. But if you think about what goes on Sunday after Sunday in that Sunday morning hour, it is about reassurance. It is about calm. It is not about disruption and, and overturning. Um, and so in many ways, our churches, because they foster this sense of well-being and innocence and connection among white people, 
they've reinforced some of the structural outlines of white supremacy. They just do. And, you know, certainly that's not intentional, um, but very little about structural inequality. You know, it's the extreme examples that we can point to and say, there's someone who's in the KKK, there's someone carrying a torch in Charlottesville. That's extreme white supremacy. Most white supremacy is animated, you know, as the great philosopher Hannah Arendt wrote, you know, the banality of evil. It's just the everyday things we do without thinking that create structures of opportunity that are not open to black people. So let me follow on that. When we're looking at these kinds of questions, one of the things that you incorporate, and you say specifically that you incorporate in your analysis, is a methodology called critical race theory. And that has raised some flags, particularly in evangelical Protestant circles recently. What is the value of using critical race theory, and what are some of the obstacles that using that kind of theory brings up in this kind of analysis? Sure. And let me just say, this kind of analysis is never without obstacles. We have been living in the grips of an unpardonable system of racial oppression in the U.S. for 400 years. And we are just starting, just starting to have substantial conversations about its structural quality. And so these are always difficult conversations, and they're going to be difficult for hundreds of years to come. There's no way around it. Critical race theory is an approach to understanding race. It's a scholarly and academic approach. It derives from you know, a structuralist or constructivist point of view that recognizes that race, or a historicist point of view, I should say, that recognizes that race as such has not always existed. It hasn't. We can point to moments in U.S. history when racial categories begin to form and begin to take shape in law, in policy, in practice. Um, there was no such thing as black forever. That's not a natural category of being. That's a historically constructed category of being that comes into use when in the early, uh, what would become the United States, a property interest in black bodies is defined. We see it take shape in the 1670s in Virginia when, you know, white servants and black servants are, are suddenly treated differently under colonial law. And servitude is something that is defined as heritable by birth if your skin is black. And that's when blackness starts to take on its modern shape as a tool of the expropriation or appropriation of black bodies and black labor. So race has not always existed as such. It is not a natural category of being. And to understand how it took shape, why it took shape, when it takes shape, and what keeps it in place as a color coding, if you will, for who gets the best life chances in the United States, that's just that's the work of critical race theory. And criticism means, you know, in the scholarly sense, taking something apart to understand how it works. That's what critical race theory is. Well, and so I I wonder, you are looking specifically at race and segregation as an historical fact within the Mormon church. But this also raises questions of what has recently been termed intersectionality. So there's not simply one type of oppression, but there are intersectional oppressions, there are intersectional power structures. And you talk about this a little bit in your book, Mormonism and White Supremacy, but I'd be interested to sort of invite you to go deeper. What are the roles of looking at the historical stance on other questions, the question of gender disparity in the church, the question of LGBTQ plus people within the church, how does that kind of intersectional approach illuminate the kind of analysis that you're doing here? 
Well, and you're right. I mean, an intersectionality, let's give credit, is a, is a term that was developed by the legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw to account for the way the law could not wrap its mind around and failed to remedy historical experiences of, of Black women because, you know, the law can to some extent comprehend gendered identity and racialized identity, but to understand the people who are at the intersections of these systems has been beyond the ken of, of our legal system. And so, you know, similarly, we find in scholarship a tendency to only look at race or to only look at gender. And certainly, you know, there are flaws in, in, in every work, every scholarship, every piece of scholarship, every book focuses on, takes a certain point of entry and winds it a certain way through. Wherever possible in my book, I tried to highlight where other systems of oppression come into play. The LDS Church, like most American Christian churches, has a similarly oppressive history with indigenous peoples, especially given our settler territorialism, our you know occupation of Ute and Paiute and Shoshone land, uh, as well as other tribes in North Bannock. You know, we we occupied indigenous land, we took it away, we enslaved indigenous people. Um, there's no question about that. Of course, there are also intersections with you know the way the church has treated LGBTQ people. And, you know, there are some pretty troubling intersections, the way that Black Mormons have stepped forward and volunteered themselves to make the argument that the church should have religious liberty to be less than inclusive of LGBTQ people appropriating the imagery and the legacy of the civil rights movement. I mean, Black Mormons have done this. So it's an interesting work. And again, you know, the more there's only so much a scholar like me can do, right? I can present my experience as a white Mormon woman of the church and the way white people in the church developed their hegemony. But there is great work that has been done and so much more that needs to be done by scholars of color, of Mormonism, within Mormonism and beyond. There's sort of two lines of force here that I want to explore because you're talking about both the kind of anecdotal testimony of people who have suffered oppression. So speaking up and saying, I have not just suffered oppression as a person of color, I've also suffered oppression as a person who has a differentiated sexuality or as a woman, and that the law has difficulty engaging with this, and that the the church has done not a great job of engaging with those kind of anecdotal experiential lines. But I'm also aware that you talk about Lowry Nelson, who was a sociologist in your book, Mormonism and White Supremacy as well. The church has also been resistant to more scientifically based examinations of these sociological issues as well. And I'd I'd invite you just for a moment to explore the intersection of that resistance. How is it that the church is is able to both resist the kind of scientific sociological and the anecdotal experiential so strongly? (laughs) Well, because, you know, it's based on revealed authority, which means whatever the process says goes sometimes. I mean, that's a gross reduction because here's the thing, David, Mormonism for me is a movement. It's a very rich, complicated, messy field of human desire and belief and endeavor. And the LDS Church has emerged, you know, in the late 20th century as the most visible representation of the Mormon movement. But there are like 14 to 15 organized branches and and beyond that, a lot of unorganized Mormons out there who have you know, very different takes and approaches to the faith. So yeah, Mormonism is a big old mess like every other religious movement. But, you know, we see in the early 20th century, the church's emphasis on education producing a generation 
that out-migrates from Utah and gets their MD degrees and gets their PhD degrees from institutions in higher learning. Again, in Mormonism, the glory of God is intelligence. That's in our scriptures, right? So there was support for this advanced education. And yet, and these folks, when they got their tenure-track jobs and worked as sociologists and Folks from the church later reached out to them and said, for example, in the instance of Lowry Nelson, who was a sociologist at the University of Minnesota, you're an expert in rural Cuba. Tell us, based on your sociological expertise, are there any regions of Cuba in which we can find pure white people? Because we'd really love to organize the church there, but we really can't do it without pure white leadership. And and that's that. And he writes back, you know, in the 1940s and says, okay, first of all, sociologists understand that race is a construct. There's no such thing as pure white anybody. But second of all, I had always heard racial mythologizing in Mormon settings, but I, I, I never knew that it was a formal policy, right? Even at that point, the policy was sort of inchoate and unevenly applied, mostly because there just weren't that many black folks in Utah territory in Mormon communities. So it was all sort of an abstract argument to most Mormon people. And so Lowry Nelson says, this is very disturbing to me. And he writes the presidency of the church and says, I really can't offer you this information because here's why, you know, this is racist. This is a racist question you're asking me in effect. And sociologists don't be erased like that. And there's this amazing exchange preserved in letters at the University of Utah Marriott Special Collections Library, which escalates which becomes basically, you know, Lowry Nelson taking on President George Albert Smith. And within a year or two of the exchange, of the conclusion of this exchange, George Albert Smith makes a churchwide pronouncement that, yes, it is the law of the Mormon land that Black people are not to be ordained or welcomed to the temple ceremony. So, you know, there's that's a fascinating exchange and evidence of a growing allergy between Mormonism and university-based scholarship. That, that grows and that persists to this day. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dahl, and we're speaking today with Joanna Brooks. She's been on our show before talking about her book, The Book of Mormon Girl, and today we're talking about her recent book, Mormonism and White Supremacy, American Religion and the Problem of Racial Innocence. You ask a question in your book, Mormonism and White Supremacy, and I'm going to ask the question to you in both the past tense and in the present tense. Did Black Lives Matter in Mormon Utah, and do Black Lives Matter in Mormon Utah? And that's just, you know, I, that question is, that phrase is so important, and I almost feel like it's inappropriate for me to speak to it, given how tenuous this moment is in American racial history. I can tell you what what the stories are. I can tell you that, you know, just a few years ago, Darian Hunt, uh, a teenage African-American Mormon, was killed by police in Saratoga Springs, Utah, after he was seen brandishing a a costume sword in a public space. I can tell you that his death was reported, but there was no official call for inquiry by his co-religionists, by the people in his faith community that his name is not known and not held up in Mormon spaces, like white Mormon spaces, I can tell you that. And we can deduce from there. But, you know, the call for Black Lives to Matter is, is a very sacred one. And it, 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 it sort of belongs to the leadership of the Black Lives Matter movement and, and to Black emancipationist people. So I don't want to be cavalier. But I think if we look at the record, we can all draw our own private conclusions. I'm aware that 
in our conversations, you have been very clear that your relationship to your church historically and personally is a, is a deeply complex one. It is so clear to me at every step how meticulous the research was for this book, Mormonism and White Supremacy, how deep you went into the archives, how deep you went into the history, and how deeply you wrestled with this. I'm wondering if you're comfortable speaking to us about this. How has your engagement with this history added to or shifted the complexity of your relationship to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Isn't it complex? But it's meaning like every life of faith is complex, or it should be. It's very humbling to engage with faith communities, especially as a person of faith. You know, this is this is a big thing we're attempting to live a life of faith. But so, yes, ever since the time I was not a little girl, but probably an early teenager, I was just deeply uncomfortable saying um, and being taught or reiterating the things I had been taught to account for the church's racist practices. And I didn't have the language that called them that. And I didn't have anyone in my life who would furnish me with a sensible criticism that, that just wasn't available to me. And so I struggled personally just for a long time. And, and it wasn't until, you know, and I attended Brigham Young University and there I met a few luminaries of Mormon progressivism, such as it is. I mean, white folks to be sure, but people who I took my first African-American literature class at, at BYU. I studied with a man named Eugene England, who really, in, in his essays, challenged, challenged Mormons morally, to do, ethically, to do better all the time on all sorts of things, including race. And yet I didn't have full access to this body of historical work that had been done by scholars like Lester Bush and published in Mormon studies journals like Dialogue, which is a great journal. I didn't have access to that. It wasn't until I left Brigham Young University and, and really went to UCLA and got my doctoral degree and studied with under black teachers and taught black students and interacted with African-American folks as peers and colleagues that I really took account of my own formation as a Mormon racially and religiously. And it, it, it took many years on for me to be to keep studying ethnic studies, keep studying the history of racialized culture in the United States, to keep studying my own religion, and to come to a place where I, I could attempt a book like this. And this book was written, I chose to write this book because I needed to understand our history, and also because I felt that, that a theory that would help us begin to understand our legacy as white Mormon people was not generally available. Like we had, many of us had sort of worked this story out in our conversations, but it wasn't a broadly owned articulation of how we got here. Or as I say in the book, how do we do this to ourselves? How did we do white supremacy to the Mormon people? Like, how do we do this? How did we come to this point? So yeah, it's been a journey. And in, when this book was about to come out, I mean, this was a book that took a while in press due to COVID and other things. But when it was ready to come out, I, I took a deep breath and I was like, oh goodness, this is not going to be so fun. But at the same time, I realized that, you know, for better or worse, I'm here at the edge of the herd and who I am is a scholar. And this is how I offer what I know to the people. And it may be wrong and it may be flawed. I certainly am flawed, but it makes possible conversations that were not possible up to this point among some people, among some white Mormons who have also wrestled and begins to help us connect the dots and hopefully show up more responsibly in civil society on the urgent moral questions of our time. 
that leads to my final question. And every author, I think, has their own range of thinking about who it is for whom they're writing. Who do you hope is the audience for this book? And what do you hope the effect will be on that audience? Well, you know, and I know it has a very varied audience. It is not a homogeneous audience. I know, first of all, it's written to the standards of critical race theory, as I understand it. That's its sense of responsibility is to a scholarly approach. That, that's what defines this work. And it's, and it's there to be useful to whomever needs it or wants it. Not everyone will agree with this account. Not everyone will welcome it. I know I've heard from many white Mormons and some Mormons of color that they agree, they appreciate the work. There are others who are more orthodox, who really, really value the church as an institution for whom it has provided tremendous stability in their lives. Uh, And they may not appreciate the work. They may have a different story to tell. Those are good conversations we need to have. But the main thing I hope, and David, you're going to help me with this, is this isn't just about Mormons. Mormons are one part of an American Christian story in which many white American churches have served as incubators for a comfort, an assurance, a feeling of innocence that has kept white people feeling like the structural inequality by which we've profited every day of our lives is not actually our responsibility. And that can't be undone just by Mormon people. And it can't be just undone by African-American people. Uh, You know, my dream would be that other Christian folks read this and see if any of it rings true to their own experience. It may not, but see if it rings true. And if so, have those conversations wherever you worship, even if it's like me in your house. <laughs> well, Joanna Brooks, every time I get a chance to speak to you, I come away from the conversation having learned so much. And I just want to say, first of all, I, I got into this book knowing that it was going to be really important for me to read it. But I was so moved by the way that you framed it. It was an honest recollection and assessment of your own tradition, but you offer it almost as a gift, as you said, to those of different traditions, different flavors of the Christian faith to begin to assess their own complex history and to make amends and reparations for that. I certainly hope that my listeners will feel themselves up to that challenge and will take that challenge. I certainly want to. I want to thank you for taking the time, all of the time that you took to research and create this book, but also thank you so much for taking the time to talk about it with me and my listeners today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, David. It's it's just always a pleasure. and, And I wish all of your listeners well and good health during this difficult time. And may we all come out on the other side appropriately chastened and ready to do the work that our time requires. We've been speaking today with Joanna Brooks. She's an award-winning author and editor. She's written 10 books on race, religion, gender, social movements, and American culture, and has appeared in global media outlets including the BBC, NPR, The Daily Show, CNN, and MSNBC, and The Washington Post. She is currently Associate Vice President for Faculty Advancement and Student Success at San Diego State University. And we've been speaking today about her recent book, Mormonism and White Supremacy, American Religion and the Problem of Racial Innocence. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kija. 
Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.